Now it's True Wealth presented by Little John Financial Services. Here is David Littlejohn with True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. All right, gang, you know what time it is. It's the best Tuesday you've had all week, and it's time for the True Wealth Show. I'm your host, Dave Littlejohn. Joining me in studio today, Matt Dixon. All right, Matt. That wasn't got... enthusiastic enough, was it? No. I was I was like not ready for that. I was like, Matt Dixon. No. I know. I'm going to try like again. So low. Like, and with me in studio today is Matt Dixon. I'm like, like, really? Like, <laughs> Come on, dude. Matt Damon. Wake up. I didn't drink enough. Cu- <laughs> oh, I did drink enough cups of coffee, so I really don't have an excuse. Yeah, we don't need excuses. We need results. Yeah, performance. Right? Dixon, exactly. performance. Uh, look, we've had inflation everywhere. I think it's time that we have inflation of our enthusiasm. Ooh, I like that. Right? There we go. Right? Inflate your enthusiasm. There you go. And, you know. If our enthusiasm, though, matched the actual inflation we're seeing, I don't even think people could understand us when we speak. We'd be in here all just like, let's go, guys. Exactly. It's So markets are, by the way, having less fun than they were last week. Right. I Can think, we use the term bloodbath or is that no, too exaggerated? No, oh, that's, okay. that's all right. Well, I mean, I'll put it this way. You can totally use the term. It'll just be wrong. OK. Right. It's not. It that wasn't that bad. bad. It was just a few sectors that kind of got tossed around. Well, you know, the Nasdaq got beat up. That was it was is a tech beat mm-hmm. down a little bit. But we kind of saw that last week, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah. So and I am not going to be surprised. Look, we are into the home stretch. The last. So we basically have three weeks of trading left, including this week. We have now 13 remaining trading days for the year. That doesn't even seem possible that we're coming up on the end of the year so quick. Exactly. 13 trading days left because the holidays sort of jank up the weeks, right? The way Mm -hmm. Christmas falls this year, we're going to have the markets closed on a Friday. You do get a full trading week uh, in theory. I don't know if they're shortening Friday the 31st or not. But mm-hmm. you basically have with New Year's Eve, there are odds are good that it, the market may be closed on that day or part of the markets anyway. I haven't looked, but you've got this. They're not even all full days left, right? You know, there should be some partial days, vacation. So, but with 13 trading days left, you you have there's that's there's only a couple things left this year that move the market because a lot of people have already done their tax loss harvesting. You've done. Uh, you've heard the phrase "window dressing." You've heard me say that before. You know, I, you, know you might have said it. I don't remember you saying okay. it. Okay. So window dressing is kind of an older term, right? And you just got to figure. I've been doing this for over twenty years, and you know, back when I was a wee pup, right? I remember the the term window dressing. It's a it's a term that was used in the mutual fund industry. Okay. So window dressing. And it's just like it sounds, right? So it used to be Christmas, where you go window shopping, so you know, pretty up make the that display, to make display good. Yeah. Well, window dressing was all about arranging your portfolio for two things: one, so that your returns look good on paper, because mutual funds are typically measured on a calendar year. Okay. Right. So, how did it perform from January one to December thirty one? Now, rarely does somebody buy on the first day of the year and sell on the last day of the year. That's pretty weird. Right. So that's not really the performance you care about. I mean, if you buy it on a Tuesday in February, you're going to measure the next 12 months to the next February. Okay. So your return is 12 months. So how are they making them look so good? Well, what they're doing, though, is because that's how Wall Street measures. And it's also how a lot of investors, people don't think about this. So, by the way, pro tip right here. Okay. Pro tip for mining mutual fund data. 
the novice will look at a mutual fund and they will look at the year over year returns and they will say things like, well, show me the one, three, five, and 10 year returns. And then let me look at each year's returns, which is lining up exactly with the calendar. That's also how most of the databases search for mutual fund data. Hmm. Right? So if you're searching for performance data or performance history, it's measuring year to year to year to year on a calendar basis because it's normal. Right. That's how we typically log stuff is by our calendar. Sure. Yeah, makes sense. But if you really want to get a sense of how well an investment is performing, I think you should look, and this is my opinion, right? Okay, but, but the pros will also look at rolling rates of return. Okay? Do describe. January Layman's to January, terms. February okay. to February, March to March, April to April, right? 12-month segments, and every month you'll adjust. It's like a moving average of the one year rate of return and what it does is it gives you a sense of well if i if i invested in april and held it for a year what are my actual returns for 12 months mm -hmm. so by looking at the rolling returns you get a sense of what the average and ongoing performance has been not just what somebody has tried to make look really good on a calendar basis so that it appeals to screeners and shoppers uh. right Fluffing it up a little bit to make it look sense, good. And there's another part of it. Remember, if you listened closely to what I said earlier, and you can go back and do it because we have a podcast available at littlejohnfs.com. Mm -hmm. you know, shameless plug, right? But if you go back and listen, I said there, there are two things that move this. And one of them is the end of year to make it look good for shoppers. The other is how did the Wall Street portfolio managers get their bonuses? Typically Meeting target based goals. on end of year total performance, right? Ah, so, so their window dressing is all about making it, it look good so they qualify for bonuses. Mm. So that was one of the other sneaky things is, okay, what's in it for me? Wait a minute, wait a minute. What's in it for them? Wow. <laughs> you know? So yeah. there's an element to that, right? Human nature is at play. It's the old expression. You know, if you want to figure out what's really going on, follow the money. Mm-hmm. Okay? So that's part of it is there's these reasons that you would do it because you're trying to incentivize more people to invest and if you are the portfolio manager it's nice to get that holiday bonus yeah right? so you got to make the numbers look as good as possible exactly so that's part of it so we're now at the point in the year where we're kind of getting late in the game for window dressing mm. not impossible but late in the game a lot of the bonuses may have already been sort of baked in based on whenever their end of year reporting is going to be so most of the time they've already distributed capital gains and that's important as well because there's a process to which a, a fund mutual fund decides to if they have embedded capital gains or losses and they want to distribute those share the, the gains or losses to shareholders typically not losses you, the, you almost would never see a mutual fund distribute losses very rare okay uh, because they would carry those gains forward to offset, or those losses, they'd carry them forward to offset other gains. Because when you distribute a gain, it's taxable. Mm -hmm. You know, and if it's in a retirement plan, no big deal. But for non-retirement plans, it's a big deal. So usually, the gains get distributed early, and they're declared as to when it will occur, so that fund holders can determine whether or not they want to, you know, when they're going to purchase, and whether or not they want to own that fund when a gain is distributed. And the idea is that the fund doesn't like to distribute gains very often, right? Because mm. distributing gains is distributing a tax liability. Sure. So they try to avoid doing that. Well, who wants to distribute a gain at this point in the game? 
late in the season when nobody's got any time to respond? Not oh. going to say it'll never happen, but typically you're notified of your gains distributions in November so mm. that it can be done because guess what else funds have to do? They have to do accounting, right? Oh. And then they have to yeah. actually get statements and 1099s out to everybody. So if they distribute gains, they got to get that data out so that the custodians can distribute 1099s. Or if you have an investment direct with a fund, and this happens all the time, right? If you have an account with Vanguard and you buy Vanguard mutual funds and you get a Vanguard statement, you get a Vanguard 1099. They have to do the tax reporting. So if you jigger with all of the stuff behind the scenes, then can you even say that anymore? That's like a fishing term, right? I hope I've said Jigging? That. Yeah, like, you know. Oh, you, yeah. So if you're jiggering Drop the it results, to the bottom and, you know, yeah, move so it up that, and down a little bit, yeah. jig it. So, so the, but, you know, if you are manipulating, I'll just use an easier term. Right? If you're manipulating the, 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 the mechanics underlying all the tax implications mm -hmm. of the fund you're essentially eating into the time later that's going to be needed to report to the irs and to get everything done out and on time because typically speaking your 1099s are supposed to be ready to go out by the end of january and in practice that oftentimes gets blown up and you know if you've ever had taxes and you were ready to submit them or you've already submitted the taxes and then a 1099 comes after you submitted it and you're like no now i gotta go amend my return mm -hmm. it's obnoxious and so there's somebody out there righteously so saying that's why i wait until april 15th to mail off my taxes right i don't want to but i'm not going to loan them any more money you're not to the buying that, that are you david to. and also because i want to make sure that I'm getting all my 1099s. And you know what? You go ahead and you stand by that. Mm -hmm. You're not <laughs> buying it, though. I can see it in your eyes. You're like, you're just not wanting to deal with it. <laughs> well, I mean, it's tough. You could theoretically file your taxes on you know, January 1 if you wanted to. Uh, it'd be tough to have all the data that you need. So my suspicion is you're going to let that data trickle in. And early filers are going to be able to get those things out in maybe mid to late February. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just, I feel like the early filers are the ones that know they're getting a tax return and they're like, come on, bring me that money. And then everyone else is like, yeah. yeah. Well, and if your financial circumstance is really simple, right? If you don't have a lot of moving parts, you can get away with that easier. The more complicated and complex your returns, the higher the probability that you're filing an extension. Mm -hmm. So anyway, there it be. Right. And, well, and we haven't even touched the surface of things like K1s and other stuff because that's, well, because we're not going to touch the surface of that right now. No. <laughs> anyway, uh, so all of this to say that if you've wondered, is the market up, down, sideways, or otherwise? Well, it was, you know, it was up for a while, then it was down big, and then last week it was up big, and it was approaching all time highs all over again. And then it looked like it was going to come out of the gate pretty strong Monday, and it was soft, and then today was sort of another flop. There's a reason for this, though. I think that the market is just really hesitant to commit to go higher, like right out of the gate this week. But David's putting on his headphones. So I'm going to make you wait. You want to know why I think the market's hesitant? Stick around, and we will talk about that right after this important obscene profit break. So, with that, we will be right back. This is Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. And you're listening to The True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN.
Hey, gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Show. Dave Littlejohn in studio with Matt Dixon. All right, we are talking shop today about, you know, the markets have done some upsy downsy, and we just went through a whole long explanation of window dressing. If you want to get the uh, lowdown on what that was all about, check it out at our podcast. You can go to littlejohnfs.com under the Educate tab, and you can find the podcast. It'll be posted tomorrow. You can get caught up. But I thought there was another reason that the market seems really hesitant to launch this week. Matt, what mm -hmm. do you think that could be? Well, the feds were talking about inflation a little bit, and there was some news that was supposed to come out on that, correct? Right. So the Federal Reserve, the FOMC, Federal Open Market Committee, is in meeting right now. All right. So they met today. They typically meet in, oh, man, I always forget, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Wouldn't you like to be part of one of those meetings? No. I no? think it sounds miserably boring. I mean, it would be interesting to get the data early, but I cannot imagine that uh, it would be that much more exciting than watching paint dry. Why do they do it in Wyoming? It's just their thing. I'm not, I actually don't like, know the reason why, but that's where. That really surprises me, by the way. Yeah. Like, I, I, maybe they like hats or, uh, or snow. <laughs> I'm like yeah, or do they fly in and stay at the must, local right? hotel? So, then... so anyway, they're they're getting together in Jackson Hole, and the, uh, at least I believe they are. I mean, somebody's going to go fact check. That's not where they are. I'm like, oh well, because that's always where it's been. But uh, so the the Fed Open Market Committee is getting together to discuss how they would like to proceed with managing interest rate policy. Now, keep in mind what interest rate policy is all about. Okay. The Federal Reserve is attempting to influence the supply of money in the economy. If there is more money available, it is an inflationary trend. If there is less, well, it's an inflationary influence, I should say. And there's definitely a lot right. more money around. Right. If there's less money in the system, it tends to be a, well, it doesn't have to be disinflation. What it does is it slows the rate of inflation, right? So reducing the it's to slow economic activity right so increasing the money supply is supposed to increase economic activity decreasing the money supply should yes you're nodding your head thinking wow captain obvious here yeah it's supposed to decrease mm -hmm. okay and and the thought behind it is that remember our banks are they they are a fractional reserve system so like if you put a dollar in the bank it's not like every dollar that's ever gone in the bank is sitting in the bank Right? It gets loaned back out to other people so that they can do other economic activity with it. And so it leverages up the value of the money in circulation. If you make it so that there's more money in circulation, the banks are lending more, the people that get the money on the loans are using other banks at the same time, they're leveraging it out. It has a multiplier effect of money putting more in the system. And that's in addition to the actual printing of money. Mm -hmm. Right when the, when the Treasury issues debt and the Federal Reserve buys it with money that didn't exist before. Yeah, that's like the craziest piece to really think about. Yeah, like we don't we didn't print the money. We just changed where the zeros and dots were on the spreadsheet and now we have treasuries in our balance sheet. That's so a, that just seems like risky it, it's business. It's really wild. A lot of people do not know this, but the Federal Reserve, their balance sheet is not part of the federal government's debt. And the Federal Reserve, mm -hmm. prior to 2004, had a total balance sheet of under a trillion dollars. I think it was around $850 billion in assets. After 2008, when they did the Troubled Asset Relief Program, or TARP, 
if you remember back in the day, then uh, they they added nine hundred billion in stimulus dollars. Was this a way to try and spring us out of the economic out of the, collapse? Uh, the yeah, collapse. Yeah, and stabilize the banking system as mm-hmm. well. So they they pushed they they vaulted their balance sheet to a shade under two trillion. It seems like this is an underlying theme. Like, hey, we're in economic distress. Well, I want you to do the math. That for a dec more than you know two decades, it was under a trillion dollars, and then it went from two thousand eight, it shot up by a, a trillion, so it doubled in two thousand eight, and today it's approaching nine trillion. That's just exponential growth. It's exponential growth. And so now the federal debt has now exceeded, I think, $21 trillion, which is exceeding our national uh, gross domestic product, right? So our national debt is bigger than our GDP. So, so that's another indication of bad. But we're not including the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. Oh, we're which, not? No, that's the thing. Is there's $9 huh. trillion that we're not really including in the math. Be interesting and, to know how much debt we have total there well, compared you, to like how much money is actually in existence. Well, if you look, th- yeah, right. Yeah, there's like thirty trillion dollars between federal debt and Fed balance sheet. Okay. Now, some could argue that the Fed's balance sheet in a fiat currency is sort of like pirate code, right? It's mm-hmm. like, well, it kind of applies, but it's more like a guideline, really. <laughs> right? Like, okay, I don't, uh, like, where does it fall? Right? You know I'm trimming that for a radio promo, Great. right? Right. <laughs> Dave doing pirate voices. <laughs> it's more like guidelines. So the thank you, Mr. Tibbs. Yeah. I guess that was really, that was Captain Barbosa, mm. just so we're clear. Okay. Uh, anyhow, if you think about the Fed as being a little bit more pliable, then I, I don't know where, I, I still know we have an absurd amount of debt and we're still creating more. So, it's, so what it's led to is inflation, right? Oh, you know, yeah. Like, like the whole thing is we're in this inflationary environment we all know. And we if you don't over, know. Like, <laughs> then you're hiding under a rock. Yeah. Right? If you're on fixed income, you're worried. Oh, you should be, yeah. Because we have seen certain areas spike radically. Um, I was pulling up uh, just commodities alone. All right, so I pulled up. I, this is looking at. We have a, a research tool, so uh, I'm going to give you one-year trends, and we're close to the end of the year. So these are pretty close. But if we just look year to date, actually, let's say starting in January till today. Remember, we talked about this for how everybody likes to use the um, rather than a rolling number, they they use the calendar number. So mm-hmm. we'll use the calendar number for you. Steel is up 91 percent. Since the beginning of 2021. Wow. Natural gas is up 56%. Uh, uranium's up 50%. Gosh, you know, I, I notice every time I go to 7 Eleven, uranium is expensive. <laughs> uh, so you could trim that one too. Okay. All right. Oil is up 47%. We it's, all I mean, feel it's that down one. The last month, which is good, but it's up 47% for the year. Aluminum's up 33, more than 33%. Copper's up almost 22%. So, uh, here's the one that slays me. Because people call me and they're really nervous when I've I've kind of dogged on gold, but gold's down six point four percent for the year. Yeah, that's not ooh ooh. Right, and how about the oil to gold ratio? So the number of barrels of oil divided by the number of ounces of gold, the oil to gold ratio has dropped thirty six percent. Wow. Right, and so that's the issue. Uh, if we look at there, I mean, there's other there, things. There's an underlying at. theme I'm seeing right? here: the cost of metal. Is cost of, cost of commodities is up gone a lot. through the roof. 
Yep. Lumber prices, by the way, up 13%, uh, up 3.5% year to wow, date. That's but one surprising. year trend is 13%. So that talks about, remember how like we were teasing about you should you know sell a piece of plywood and trade it for a car uh-huh. like a year ago? Yeah. Well, if you remember, so that was about a year ago when we were like, good grief, man, go try to buy building materials. Mm-hmm. So they've really come in a lot. But uh, lumber's up for the month, but the one-year trend, 13% price increase, but year-to-date only 3.5%. So that, like December was a big spike. Yeah. Last year. Can you imagine yeah. building a house right at the peak, like right at the apex when a piece of plywood was over $100? Well, oh, man. Can, yeah. I mean, the, the it's it's not to say that prices are totally down. They just stopped going up. That's mm-hmm. the thing. They stopped going up as aggressively. Uh, but home prices are still up. The Let's see, the one-year trend, uh, if I'm reading this correctly, almost 16% increase in home prices across the board for the Case-Shiller Index. That's insane. Right. Has real estate ever gone up that much in a year? Um, well, I, there, there I, have been recovery times like after the 2008 collapse. Right, but we're not really trying to recover from a collapse in the sense of... No. The, the point, though, is that inflation is very, very real. And why are we having all this inflation discussion? Or the Fed's balance sheet? Because of the Fed. Who's mm-hmm. meeting right now to decide what will we do with interest rates? And the Fed has done some things that are really subtle behind the scenes that a lot of people don't even know about. Like, I don't know that we've even talked about this, Matt. Fed's doing reverse repos. Okay. Okay, so a reverse repo, the really simple summary is, it is the Fed doing overnight loans, but in reverse, rather than the Fed loaning money out overnight to make, uh, to help with liquidity in the system, the Fed is actually taking money out of the system overnight and then putting it back in the next morning. Hmm. Right. That's essentially what's going on. So a reverse repo of over a billion dollars at a crack. Wow. Big reverse repos, right? Or like like over a hundred billion. I okay. Say. So, so for a listener about like, oh, we took I think the last one was like 115 billion or 120 billion overnight out of the system. What they are doing is pumping the brakes. Hmm. Okay. Or the trying repo, to. The repo market's really short-term money, and they're just trying to slow down the sloppy loans. But they're talking about also reducing their bond purchasing, which is akin to reducing the amount of money printing. Not mm-hmm. stopping the money printing, slowing it down. I'm smiling in the studio. I yeah, so you're like grinning like, like eh. They're just going to slow it down a little, you know? But from the market perspective... That's a pretty big deal, mm-hmm. right? Because there's another thing that's been going on right now that a lot of folks don't understand. You understand it in real estate. So let me frame the markets kind of like real estate for a second. Why do house prices go up? But maybe more more so than uh, a person's salary goes up. Just a supply and demand issue? And, and leverage. Because you can mm-hmm. borrow... A bunch of money when the interest rates are low. Yeah, you're not having to pay for it all up front. Right. So if you have more borrowing capacity, so when interest rates go down and you have an otherwise unchanged income level, you can borrow more money because you can afford the payments. Yeah. So you can pay more for the house. So low interest rates stimulate demand for things like housing. And we haven't seen the interest rates really go up in how long? I mean, it They've seems been going like it's down and down and down. Right, I mean, they're creeping higher, but you know, going from 
three percent to three and a quarter on a thirty-year mortgage. Yeah. When ten and twelve years ago, you were talking about six six percent mortgages. So we've cut the mortgages by fifty percent from the prior rates, but that so we're down to really really low. Well, there's a multiplier effect in real estate because the ability to leverage that same effect exists in the stock market, and it exists in the the if you think about companies the banking abilities, system. the companies have the ability to borrow money too. Mm-hmm. So you see these big companies that are either they're borrowing money to finance operations because their growth rate is faster than the borrowing rate. Right. Right. So they're arbitraging their rate of growth against the cost of capital. They are, in some cases, borrowing money to buy back their own stock to drive their stock price up. Okay. Okay. Uh, you can even finance a dividend, right? Really? Like if you're Apple. It might be cheaper for Apple to issue a bond, a bond to pay their dividend because Apple has a better credit rating right now than the U.S. government, not legalistically, but like yeah. right now on paper they have a higher credit rating than the government. That's so, insane. So their corporate bonds are considered really, really solvent, uh, and if that's the case, then why not borrow money at, you know, one percent or something, and then turn around and pay you know, a, a dividend out, or let's say you can borrow, yeah, I mean, it's, if you borrow money at 1% to pay your dividend out at one and a half, you actually, but you're growing at five, mm-hmm. you're arbitraging by keeping more cash in your in your balance sheet. That's interesting. That's an interesting I think way I just, to think I don't of think it. I just set that up right either, by the way. Like, But yeah, if you can borrow for 1%, uh, then you know your cost to borrow is lower than your cost to pay your dividend. It's cheaper to borrow to pay the dividend out than it is to just take it out of your cash store. Right, because your own amount's growing faster than yeah the amount. Yeah, that's that's the issue. So you get into this game of like, well, we have such a strong credit rating and we can borrow as much as we want effectively. Okay, it's just <laughs> interesting they, so to think about though, like all of these companies doing that. How much money's being lent out? Right. And so it's, these are the elements at play in the market that to me are a little bit concerning. So if the Fed does anything that's particularly unexpected, it can have a ripple effect in the system. So they got to go about it really slowly and with caution. Yeah, well, what they're doing, and I think this has been smart and largely it, it, consistent, is they're forecasting a lot. The Fed's just historically behind the power curve. They're reactionary to the economy. The Fed's not out there guessing like, you know, this thing, we think it's going to get too hot, so we're going to slow it down. What they say is, this thing is too hot, so we're going to slow it down, mm. right? Yeah. It already got there. Now we need to slow it down. Like, what you know, it, it's been our concerns More in, reactive that inflation than is transitory. Now it is our concerns about inflation, uh, you know, are, here's how we're addressing inflation, right? That's that's the yeah. change, right? It's, it's yeah. So we're done speculating on whether or not it's an issue now that it is an issue we need to change our policy so it is we're going to start so if the data comes back too aggressive and they have to accelerate their response the markets may view that as scary if the data comes out as this is in line with expectations and so we're going to continue to do the response that everybody expects the market may come out tomorrow and usually they release the the information at two o'clock eastern so about 11 a.m or either one or 10 or 11 a.m west coast time they'll they'll make the fed announcements and you'll see a bunch of volatility spike because the first thing to happen is the computers read the twitter feeds and the press release and they're literally counting word numbers like how many times does the fed say these different words and so they have these 
algorithms that are looking for that, and they're going to trigger buy or sell programs. So you get a, a wash of volatility in the first 15 minutes after the Fed release as everybody tries to jockey around. And then the market commits to a direction and starts either stabilizing and going higher, or it you know kind of goes down for the day as it starts to price in the new expectations. But the Fed has forecast a lot. Like mm. they've said a lot. So the question is really tomorrow, do we come in within the parameters of what the market expects? Or are we going to chase one in the dirt and the markets could then fall from here? I don't know the answer. I, like, like I don't know the answer. My suspicion okay. is that the Fed's going to come in aligned with a lot of what they've said so far. You know, They were talking a week ago about this. I don't know that the data changes so much in one week that they're like, oh my gosh, we totally missed that. It's just a matter of how aggressive are the opinions in that meeting about whether or not policy is going to change course from what they're already on. This will be an interesting meeting. We're going to have to get out the popcorn and have a party, like a Super Bowl party, but just watching the Feds. Yeah, it'll be good for an easy 12 to 15 seconds, So, ah. which I've seen you eat popcorn. I have faith in you. Okay. But, look, we are running long. Let's grab a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about, you know, so great, where's the market headed? What does it mean for us? That and more after this fabulous profit break. This mm. is Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. You got True Wealth on News Radio 1240, KQEN. All right, gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Radio Show. Uh, in studio with me today. Who? You tell him. Matt Dixon. Oh, yeah, yeah, there it is. He's like, I love hearing it. Say my name again. Matt. Yeah, say it. <laughs> so, uh, well, look, we have covered, you know, why the market's ex- – basically the market we think is excited about the Fed. And the question is, do we get a Santa Claus rally between now and the end of the year? Uh, we've been kind of on a Santa Claus recovery rally. We haven't broken out into new all-time highs. And I can't tell you if we will. I'll tell you one thing. Uh, tell me a thing. I was in Woodburn the other day doing some shopping at the outlet malls, and it was madness, mm-hmm. like pure, crazy retail madness. Yeah, so, I mean, Nike had people like lined up trying to get in. It was a zoo. I, I think that there's this combination. I mean, we're, we're talking about inflation. My sense is that not only is it real, it's very real. Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, it's, it's a very real thing that we have got a lot of things that are getting more expensive. Uh, the real question is, will it last? Right? Now, I have- That's a good who, question. Who wants to hear my crazy theories on air? Ooh, these are my favorites, so right. please do tell. I'm gonna get out the notebook and the pen. I'm right. keeping a log of these, so. So crazy theory on air, this starts with, so the, the crazy theory goes around the workforce, okay? All right. So first of all, part of what throws off a supply chain is, okay, we're in a pandemic. Yes. Okay. Most of our listeners are in Oregon. Most are in Southern Oregon. Most are in Douglas County within that subset. And probably most of those are in the greater Roseburg and surrounding area. But the interesting thing to me is that our perspective when you live in Oregon may feel different than the rest of the country. Because largely the rest of the country has sort of moved forward with a lot of their, well, we've kind of reopened and we're just acknowledging that 
COVID is what it is. Okay. Now, yeah. there are folks out there listening right now that that phraseology may drive you up the wall, just berserk. Because, and and I'm I'm here to respect the fact that it, especially if you have people that are close have been affected by this, this thing is real. Mm-hmm. Anybody that says like it's invented by the government or something like that, we like. Yeah, and I got beachfront property for you. It's for sale in Arizona. Great deal on it. Okay? <laughs> You're a sucker if you can't take this thing as a real thing. Okay, uh, So I'm not here to suggest that you're wrong or anything else. What I'm just saying is the acknowledgement of where we're at is that it's a known event. So if you know you have the option of medically preparing for this through vaccination and through behavioral modifications, wearing masks and so forth, you get to do that. And if somebody else doesn't, uh, it's the frustration of whether or not you feel less safe or whatnot. It's, I mean, that's almost a, a, a weird way to say this. And it, it sounds insensitive, so I'm not trying to be, I'm trying to do this carefully, but it's like a cost of doing business, right? Like in the United States, there is a premium on individual liberty. And that is that at some point you can't, or you're not supposed to compel somebody else to do something because you're okay with it, but they're not. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's just the way that works. It's like you can control your space, but you can't force somebody else to control to, you know, you can't control somebody else's through whatever means that you want. And, and we have limitations on that, but they're all constrained within sort of this, you know, legal spectrum of like, Matt, I can take a swing at you, right? I have a right to throw a punch at you. I just don't have a right to strike you with it. Yeah. Right? And that's the weird part about it. And, you know, the idea of, well, I have a right to breathe clean air or whatever. It's like, yeah, but you don't have to stay here. You can go somewhere else. You know, if somebody wants to come into your house, you have a right to control that space, but you can't control everything. So there's this weird spectrum. Anyway, here in Oregon, we still have really aggressive COVID policies. And so there's a lot of divisiveness around that. Mm-hmm. And it's tough, right? That part's tough because it also colors our thinking about the rest of the economy. But largely in the United States, we've reopened and people are going back to work. So now we get into crazy theory land. COVID triggers a shortage of labor and the shortage of labor affects the supply chain. The mm-hmm. supply chain less supply equal demand uh, yeah same demand less supply prices go up but then we took key elements and we modified them right so the the government essentially modified what was happening in the private sector in certain areas an example would be rent control or eviction moratoriums okay Mm -hmm. uh the release of additional food assistance. Now, I'm not making judgment calls on whether or not these are good or bad, but I'm saying these influence they the They happened. Economy. They still happened, yeah, right. and it plays an effect. Right? You had unemployment benefits that at some point, for some people, actually put more money in people's pockets than if they went back to work. Mm-hmm. Right? So it, that's what we call a pernicious incentive, right, where you're incentivizing people to have behaviors that are not good for the outcome. Of the economy. Right. Well, in this case... Well, maybe for themselves personally, but it's, again, where did the money come from? In theory, it comes from the taxpayer, because like the state of Oregon, for example, and employers can't print their own money, mm-hmm. right? So when the government does this, it comes from somewhere, and that means the taxpayer or through debts, which gets paid in some other way. So we had pernicious incentives and so forth that 
further exacerbated the, the supply chain problems. I think there's something else. Okay. What's the caveat here? What are we missing? I think that we've also seen the proliferation of a different form of underground economy. So some of it is people that don't have to work because if you supply basic needs, mm -hmm. right? Look, you now have housing and food and you have Oregon Health Plan or some other form of Medicaid for catastrophic medical, then largely your basic needs are kind of met so you don't have to go to work. Right, and you're allowing yeah. some people to, in air quotes here, retire early. Right. right. I mean, it Just is step out of the, and, yeah. And, and there may be many people who are like, look, I'd like to find a living wage job in this, that, and the other. Okay, I'm not, that's not where I'm going with this. Mm -hmm. Just saying that we have created right. the conditions to exacerbate labor shortages. Sure. Okay. And then we have seen the price of things rise, which means that employers have had to increase the wages they pay to people, mm -hmm. which means they've had to become more discerning and they've had to trim positions in order to afford to continue to operate. So again, further exacerbating the labor shortage. We also have aging baby boomers, many of whom are beginning to completely exit and retire from the workplace, so reduces the supply of labor that's available. Sure. Here's the one I don't know that's how to factor yet. I think there have been some people that have been day trading in both cryptocurrencies and penny stocks and have seen through some of these Robin Hood weird, you know, crowdsourced pushes really significant financial gains. Uh-huh. I mean, right? I've heard this story I've heard from stories of people having six-figure financial yep. gains, sometimes closer to seven. I mean, people making 3, 4, 500,000 dollars in crypto and in um penny stocks and this is right? disclaimer we're not telling you to go oh yeah, yeah buy no, this stuff that's not in, let's be real clear this is not investing this is speculating at best right <laughs> and now they're doing it with things like nfts where some artist comes up with a new blog strip or something yeah. and they're trading for thousands or tens of thousands of dollars now to me this is a very concerning marketplace because I think it creates a lot of froth where uh, it's like it, it's its own little economy of everybody bidding things up with gains that were leveraged from other things. Mm -hmm. And if anything goes wrong in that space, it can create a sort of a house of cards that can collapse. Yeah. But if you've made three or four hundred thousand dollars trading and you haven't really recorded a lot of it in profits that the IRS has even seen because it's in the crypto marketplace, you're self-funding your exit from the workforce, right? Now. Mm -hmm. And you're able to afford higher prices on some things, especially if you're doing this with no fiscal planning. Right. That's an interesting look into so, what could be happening here. So I and and so I think there's and then I think there's also some of it. Somebody out there may be out there saying, some people just reprioritize their lives. COVID was like, you know what? We need to get back to spending some more time with our families and so forth. And two working parents is no way to live. Yeah, I mean just making sacrifices well in the entertainment piece of that i mean campgrounds you can't book a campground unless you do it six months in advance i mean we've really shifted the way that we entertain ourselves too a lot of things have shifted uh, because necessity sort of breeds invention and again especially here in oregon but all of those things are to say that the supply chain has been of labor has been really dramatically affected I believe those conditions are starting to normalize. And so as hopefully two things happen, one normalization of the labor force and then also the 
recovery in, in the automation environment, right? Like these chip shortages. Look, we're running long. I want to talk about chip shortages and what that means. Let's take a break. Okay. We'll take the final break. Don't let me forget this, Matt. How the chip shortages, like what does that mean not in the United States? And what does it mean in the United States? We'll okay. this last break. We'll be right back. This is Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. Yeah, True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. Hey, gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Show. Matt, at our break, we were talking about chips, mm-hmm. right? And salsa and dip, or no, different. different uh, I'd love to talk about chips and salsa. It's one of my favorites. So True. we can spend the rest of the radio show talking about yeah, that. Matt can eat a burrito as big as your head. Just trust me on this. Facts. Uh, so <laughs> it was the, so chip, it's the chip shortage. I, I, I'll admit it's on my mind only because we're in the uh, sort of in the market researching different uh, vehicles and so forth right now. I'm personally in the market, so that's like a thing, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, we have this shortage of chips. It's the the EEPROMs, it's the the processor chips and so forth that go in the computers for vehicles, right? But now there's shortage of chips all over the place. But these processor chips, you know, there are tens if not hundreds of thousands of vehicles that are sitting waiting for chips so that they can be sold all part of the demand or the supply side monkeyed up by the fact that we don't have everything to finish a product mm-hmm. right so now there's a shortage of supply in vehicles and if you looked around at how expensive they are well yeah there's no base models for anything because you have a limited number of chips what do you do if you're a company Put them in the most expensive, best margin thing you have because you can't sell much. Mm-hmm. So you're going to make as much profit as you possibly can. So that's where all the allocations are going right now is to the vehicles where they can get the best margins. Right. Okay. And you know what we call that? Good business. Yeah. And really expensive for the consumer. Okay. So my suspicion is that that begins to shift as we're starting to see some companies create redundant supply chains, right? Fancy way of saying they're going to build some manufacturing of chip plants so that they don't have to rely on only foreign suppliers outside of the border. So it affects the United States and outside the United States. Because believe it or not, there are places in the world where the COVID restrictions are a lot more aggressive than here in the U.S., I think we're seeing some retooling, too. Like companies, uh, I think it was Qualcomm that's partnered with BMW because they're looking to change their market dynamic and Mm -hmm. the money is in the automotive sector and so they're going through a rebranding and i think you know we saw ford they went out and partnered with gfs to start having them make chips so we're seeing the market kind of just shift around and find the areas where they can get the supply exactly but so i think we will continue to see uh the my suspicion is that the proliferation of computers and these the the chips that go in i mean they go everywhere now like, yeah I, I mean i'm joking with folks but like i have they're they're tiny but we have chips in my like you're, light switches are you oh i thought you were going to talk about your uh, elaborate christmas light display well, like that's linked to some of it right yeah but yeah the christmas light display that's powered by a combination of esp32 and esp8266 uh processor chips right right these are little computers on a wafer Mm -hmm. that that run micro programs to do things they're everywhere they're in your refrigerator 
right? Even in, in my Roomba, even in my vacuum cleaner. <laughs> your vacuum, in your, everybody's got them in their phones. Yeah. They're everywhere. So I don't think that we're going to slow down on the use of that stuff. Can we title the show Chips, 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 and Salsa? If, if, you, if you think that's a good title, I'm okay. not even opposed to it. I'm, right? I'm going with it. I, I think the bottom line is that for all of us out there that I'm, I'm very interested to see where supply chain goes. I'm interested to see the effects on the market. The Fed's going to begin to raise interest rates, and we're going to see some normalization of labor supply. We may start to see this inflation sort of get tamped down. Uh, things like vehicles where artificial – they're not really artificial, but this extreme shortage of specific parts – but other parts aren't shortage. Well, and we saw the price of metal has gone through the roof this year, too. Yeah, and so that's going to play an effect. Some, some of that, it's sort of like the price of um, you know, meat went up significantly because many of the plants had to shut down for how they were processing. So we have you know, feed supply interruptions, all kinds of interruptions as a result of COVID. So you can just see what happens when you, you yank on the supply chain and see mm-hmm. what sort of breaks. As that normalizes... I don't know the prices come way back down, but some things I think, well, like I, I, I still think vehicles are probably overbaked because once you can get the chips in them, they have this backlog that they can quickly bring to market. So the supply is mm-hmm. like, well, here we go. And once the supply shifts radically, prices should you know, normalize somewhat. But right now, oh, buddy, you're going to pay <laughs> if you need a rig. So. Yeah. Okay, look, uh, we're out of time, which means as we get to the end here, the important one is how do you reach us if you would like help with your personal finance? Matt, do you know the number? 541-375-0898. That you do. So good stuff. Also, you can give us uh, an email at info at littlejohnfs.com, and you can get this podcast and other great info by going to littlejohnfs.com. But we're out of time for now. So until next time, this has been David Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. The preceding program was paid for by Little John Financial Services. The opinions and views expressed may not reflect those of Brook Communications, its affiliates, or its employees.